This is the History Tavern Podcast. In the latest episode of the History Tavern Podcast, hosted by me, Nick Tony, Kent Masterson Brown dropped by the tavern to talk about his latest book, Meet at Gettysburg, A Study in Command. Among the things we talked about was the largely negative coverage Meade has received over the years. However, Kent argues that Meade was a superior operational commander and re-examines his actions during the Gettysburg campaign. Above all else, Kent's work states that on the eve of the Battle of Gettysburg, Meade would dutifully take command of an army that had never yet defeated its enemy. Kent, again, thank you so much for, for joining me. Meade at Gettysburg, a study in command, a brand new book. Um, and I want to start somewhere. I want to start in Prussia, actually, in Europe, and talk a little bit about Karl von Clausewitz, uh, who uh, it seems to have a big influence on Meade and sort of how he thinks about war. So can you talk a little bit about uh, Clausewitz and uh, that impact that he had on Meade? Yeah, well, uh, Clausewitz, of course, was a Prussian officer in the Napoleonic Wars. And... Um, Prussia played an enormous role um, in those in that conflict, and um, he also was a um, what you would call a military scholar. He wrote a text um, that was only published posthumously in 1832, but the text is known as it, it's known as Clausewitz on War. And Clausewitz, what, what, he, what he really does in this book is go through the theories one would use to uh, address broad strategic moves of an army. He's not a tactician. He leaves that to the colonels and the brigadiers. This book is for army commanders. And the object of it is to address major themes that army commanders, operational commanders, must address. And Clausewitz, uh, as did Antoine de Jomini, uh, the uh, Swiss-born French officer, both wrote about such themes. And um, the person who has the greatest impact on George Meade is Dennis Hart Mahan, who was his instructor at West Point in military theory, military science, and who wrote a text called The Outpost uh, in 1847. And, and uh, <laughs> Mahan taught every one of Meade's corps commanders, except Sickles, of course. Uh, and he also taught every one of Lee's. And Lee was superintendent of West Point when Mahan was a professor. And follows along the same line as Clausewitz and de Jomini. And um, where I use him in this text is to address what Meade was thinking uh, when he ordered John Reynolds to move his first corps forward on, he, the order was June 30, and then he subsequently wrote a letter that day to, to Reynolds, further elucidating what he wanted done, and that Reynolds then moved forward on July 1, 
And uh, uh, a lot of writers like um, Harry Fans, who was a good friend, uh, um, uh, Edwin Coddington, uh, wrote that somehow Reynolds went forward with the idea of that, that Meade would accept if uh, anything Reynolds wanted to do. If he wanted to bring on an engagement at Gettysburg, fine. If he wanted to right. do something else, it's fine. And I, I, I've never bought into that. Um, one, you're way too far away from the rest of the army to bring on an engagement there. Uh, some of these corps are 32 miles away, like the Sixth Corps. The, the, the Fifth Corps at Hanover is more than 22 miles away. Uh, the rest of the army, including headquarters, is anywhere from 10 to 14 miles away. And they're just not going to be able to help in case uh, the First Corps runs into trouble. So what was Meade doing? And what he was doing is something that Clausewitz talks about, that Dijomini talks about, and Dennis Hartmahan wrote a book about, The Outpost. And it's the operational use of an advanced corps. And let, let me, uh, uh, the best way to do it is um, uh, uh, hear what um, uh, Mahan wrote about it. It's a very short paragraph, but this tells you exactly what it is. It says, when an enemy's position is to be reconnoitered with a view to force him to show his hand by causing him to call out all his troops, then a large detachment of all arms adequate to the task of pressing the enemy vigorously and also withdrawing with safety when pressed in turn must be thrown forward. Um, well, it, it, the, the, what you can see here is a reconnaissance in force. Right. It's a big command to do this. And the bigger the command, the more the enemy looking at it will collect in front of it. And the object is to, it's a, it's, it's a reconnoitering, but what he's doing is causing the enemy to react and then report the reaction. And once he reports the reaction, then the commander can then do what he thinks he must do next. But it's to, it's to cause the enemy to collect its forces in front of him. And um, if the enemy attacks him, then it's up to that advanced force commander to fall back to the lines that were previously established. And uh, let, me, let me tell you something really kind of fun about this mm -hmm. in terms of my, my research in this book. Some years ago, I was in the. I spent a lot of times, a lot of time in the National Archives, and um, I was going through all the Corps papers, papers of every one of Meade's Army Corps, and you go through one file at a time. All these different original papers, um, and in the Eleventh Corps papers, I came across an envelope, and the envelope on the cover was written. Contents taken from the pockets of Major General John F. Reynolds, July 1, 1863. And in it were seven or eight different documents. Um, there were messages from a signal station at Carrick's Knob behind uh, Emmitsburg. There were all sorts of, of documents in there. But there was one that caught my eye. 
And this, this particular dispatch is found in the official records. But what's not known in the official records about this dispatch is that it is written entirely in the handwriting of George Meade and signed by George Meade. Right, right. And, and here is what he says in a nutshell in that dispatch. And this is to Reynolds. He says, in case of an advance in force against either you at Gettysburg, now he's already ordered him to Gettysburg, or Howard at Emmitsburg, you must fall back to that place. And I will reinforce you from the core nearest you, which are Sickles, then at Tannytown, and Slocum at Littlestown. Then he says, please get all the information you can and post yourself up in the roads and routes of communication of the enemy. <laughs> right. That's pretty clear. Yeah. Yeah. So, That's pretty clear. Um, so, so Meade and Meade's received a lot of criticism over the years for the Pipe Creek line and how attached he was to that and how overly cautious he was. But in reading your book, I mean, what he's essentially doing uh, in in layman's terms is he he's trying to set a trap uh, for Lee and and Lee uh, and lure him back to this what is a formidable defense at Pipe Creek. Is that is that oversimplifying it or is that? No, no, it's exactly right. It's exactly right. It's exactly right. And and you know, uh, Winfield Scott Hancock was asked this in the um, hearings of the Committee on the Conduct of the War. And they ask him, what was Reynolds doing out there? He says, Reynolds' corps was a mask. Now, <clears throat> a mask, it doesn't sound like that's similar to what we're talking about. It is. What it is, is Reynolds being out there masks what Meade is trying to do. Instead of just sitting behind some defense line and waiting for the enemy, hopefully, to come your way, knowing exactly once they get there what you're about, they mask it. And so Hancock even referred to it correctly as a mask. One of the things you do in, in, in forcing the enemy to collect in front of you is also keep the enemy in the dark about what you're doing. And what Meade is about right now is setting up a defense line. And I'll tell you what's really interesting um, is that at the time Reynolds becomes engaged at Gettysburg on the morning of July 1, where is George Meade physically? I found him um, nine miles east of Middleburg, Maryland. That puts him between Uniontown and Westminster. And you go, what's he doing there? But you know what he's doing. He's viewing the Pipe Creek line. And he was riding along the roads that would be the, the connector roads for all the different corps to move in support of one another. And you go, well, is what did he, did he write anything about what he's doing there? No, he was responding to dispatches from the War Department. But he put up there, headquarters, Army of the Potomac, nine miles east of Middleburg. And this is about 10.30 in the morning of July 1. Right, right. So, so it shows you Meade, Meade, there, Pipe Creek was no contingency at that hour. It was what he wanted to do. Right. 
So, and and can you can you expand a little bit on you know one thing that I, the, the the brilliance of your book is that th- there are different kinds of commanders. Some that are good operational commanders, which is Meade. I mean, he is given command on June twenty eighth, and he immediately has to start not just making sense of the army, but now maneuvering it and and making things happen. So. Yeah. When you talk about the Pipe Creek line, I mean, does it essentially, he he begins creating that on June 28th, no? <laughs> yeah, literally. Yeah. He gets, he gets June 29th. He, well, he sees it on the maps on June 28th. And he also sees on the map the Chambersburg Pipe that runs through Gettysburg. And all of Lee's troops are either on that pike east or west of Gettysburg or just north of it. So he has to say that's got to be the axis on which the enemy's operating. Where can I where can I plant my army so as to receive them and lure them into an attack? And he sees the Pipe Creek line and he goes right for it. And by the end of June 29, he's there. And so on June 30, he begins to set it up, which is, as you said, remarkable. It is remarkable. This is a guy who really has a grip on what it takes to be an operational commander. Can you talk a little bit about um, Meade, the person? Uh, I'll I'll ask a strange question. It'll seem strange at least, but how was he different from Reynolds? And you write in the book that, um, you know, Meade uh, Meade understood that Reynolds possessed a presence that he didn't have. Um, You know, Reynolds is very popular. And uh, I think the direct quote uh, from, from Meade is, impresses those around him with a, a great idea of his superiority. So wh- what, kind of, what kind of person is Meade, and how is he different from, from other leaders? Uh, Meade, uh, to look at Meade, someone said, and I quote this in the book too, it would, make hard, it would be hard to make Meade look well-dressed. <laughs> <laughs> I've known people like this. I'm sure you have. Yeah, too. I, yes, for sure. <laughs> uh, Meade is not a person with a great presence. He's tall, um, and he appears to be well built. Uh, uh, but he's not a fellow who has to look at him. You would not be necessarily impressed, and. Um, his his dress, um, unlike John Reynolds, John Reynolds when he when Meade was named commander, he comes in with his with his the, the best uniform he can find, all tight fitting, and he's described as as uh, that way as he comes in to greet George Meade, who he likes very much, and Meade likes Reynolds. They came up together through the Pennsylvania reserves uh, from the beginning of the war. And so they've known one another and appreciate one another. But 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 Meade in saying that uh, that about Reynolds, he's saying just basically a truism. Reynolds has a presence about him, and there are some people in this world who just do. It's true. Yeah, uh, you've known people who, the minute they walk in the room, everybody looks at them for some reason. They have a presence about them, and you can look at the photography of John Reynolds, and there's a great photograph of him in the book. And you can see the presence the guy has. Yeah, neatly dressed, sharp, uh, everything to the T. Uh, where that's not the case with George Meade. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Can you can you talk about July first? And so uh, you've already covered. Uh, Reynolds is given an order to re- do reconnaissance, reconnaissance in force. A lot right. is is a lot of a lot is made of Meade saying don't bring on a general engagement. And a lot a lot of historians have turned that into Meade didn't want to fight. But you, you know Meade, as we're learning, had these other calculation he he was making. At what point during the day of July first does does Meade decide oh, this is the place now? Gettysburg is where this is going to happen. Uh, and at what point does he physically go to Gettysburg? Well, it um, uh, literally um, uh, in the early afternoon of July one, after learning of the, um, the what has happened at Gettysburg, that both the first corps and the eleventh corps have been hurled back uh, to uh, ground east of the town, uh, basically given up the field and given up the town. Um, And that John Reynolds has been either mortally wounded or or was killed outright. Um, And at that stage, Meade fundamentally cancels uh, the Pike Creek line orders that he had issued earlier that same afternoon and um, uh, begins the effort of, of moving the rest of the army there. And you know, what's interesting is that at the time he orders like the Sixth Corps and the Fifth Corps to move to Gettysburg, uh, think of all the different corps that have already been committed there. Um, uh, O.O. Howard is brought up uh, uh, literally right on the heels of Reynolds' death. So the 11th Corps is there. Uh, they no sooner get there than he, in turn, directs the 3rd Corps, Sickles, who is then at Emmitsburg, to move forward. Uh, so you've got three of the seven Corps already uh, either at Gettysburg or en route. Um, then... Um, <clears throat> When Meade learns that there has been trouble in Gettysburg and that um, he doesn't at this moment know that Reynolds has been wounded or killed, uh, he orders the second corps to move toward Gettysburg, but not as a, as a, in, in a, in a role of reinforcing anyone or to add more strength to what seems to be going on up there. But he still thinks, Meade still believes that at that moment, given what information he has, that Reynolds is going to fall back like he had been directed. But the problem Meade sees is that he might fall back now on on Emmitsburg. And he says after he issued the Pipe Creek Circular, he really should fall back to Tannytown because he's he's going to become the left flank of the Pipe Creek line if he gets back there. So he directs the Second Corps to move forward to Gettysburg for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to allow Reynolds, once it is spotted that the Second Corps is there, to fall back on the Second Corps on the Tannytown Road so that he rightly covers the left flank of the Pipe Creek uh, line once he gets back there. And of course, um, Reynolds is dead. and um, the Second Corps winds up behind Little Round Top in bivouac that night. 
and Meade then moves forward with his staff uh, to, uh, to Gettysburg that night as well. And um, surveys what's happened there. And I always found interesting that um, he gets up to Cemetery Hill, looks at Culp's Hill. This is where all the fugitives of the 1st and 11th Corps are situated. And twice, Meade stares out from Cemetery Hill and audibly, but speaking to himself, says, well, I guess it's as good a place to fight a battle as anywhere else. Yeah, wow. Now, that doesn't sound like a guy's, oh, wow, the high ground. <laughs> and he has reason for his doubts. Uh, one, the left flank you, you, of, of that command that's up at Cemetery Hill, there's nothing between him, them and Little Round Top. And the problem with the right flank at Culp's Hill and in part Cemetery Hill is that it, the Baltimore Pike runs along those hills and behind those hills. And the Baltimore Pike runs all the way to Westminster, which is 22 miles southeast of Gettysburg. And Meade had just that morning set Westminster up as the supply depot for the Army of the Potomac, hopefully for the Pipe Creek Line, which is seven miles ahead of Westminster. Now Westminster is 22 miles behind um, the Army of the Potomac at Gettysburg. And that Baltimore Pike is the only access to it. So <clears throat> all the Confederates do is send <laughs> Dick Ewell's divisions over toward Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill. And um, now you've got the supply line threatened. And every moment Meade is at Gettysburg, save for the beginning of July 4, that road is under threat, or if not under outright attack. So none of the supplies Meade has at Westminster get to the Army at all. And uh, that's the price paid, as I say in the book, that's the price that was paid for the uh, 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 reconnaissance in force that failed on July 1. Right. What are, what are some of the calculations that Meade is making uh, late July 1st, early July 2nd, as to how he's going to fight? Uh, and at some point, he determines that he's going to fight defensively, but that wasn't always, you know, I think he was kicking around, uh, oh, yeah. you know, uh, taking the offensive at what point. But what are, what are the calculations he's making? Well, you know, he does. It's a neat thing you say that. Um, Meade always likes to write Halleck saying that, you know, if I get the opportunity, I'm going to attack. Um, he's often described by people as being just a, a person who's, who's totally interested in the defense. He has no offensive uh, uh, thing about him. But that's not true. Meade is a, an offensive-minded commander who uh, wants very much to find a means and mechanism to attack. The problem he faces, though, up there, once he arrives at Gettysburg, is that he sees, given where his army is, the land it occupies, that he is probably going to have to fight this battle as a defensive one. And um, 
Henry Hunt says that uh, uh, over and again, is that the situation the army found itself, made it uh, 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 beyond a reasonable doubt that this would have to be a defensive battle. Just its terrain. Uh, somebody, obviously, you already mentioned. Um, you don't. You don't let Dan Sickles off the hook, and I think I appreciate. <laughs> I appreciate that. You know, I mean, there there have been uh, historians who have. Um, you said you know the orders were kind of confusing, or you know, uh, in, in making all kinds of excuses. You, you you plainly say Dan Sickles was given clear orders. To, yes. to occupy certain ground. So can you talk oh, about, you know, yeah. can you talk a little bit about that? I sure will. Uh, he, was, he was not only given clear orders, he was given clear orders multiple times. Um, he was even given a sketch. Meade had the, uh, his chief topographical engineer uh, prepare a sketch of the positions he wanted each one of his corps to occupy. And one of those corps he had placed uh, in line, he thought, was Dan Sickles and the third corps. And that corps would, would, would be positioned to the left of the second corps, extending up the northern face of Little Round Top. And <clears throat> that's how it was drawn on the sketch. And that, that topographical engineer was, was ordered by me to hand a copy to each core commander. So Meade not only gives him oral orders, he gives him a darn sketch. And then uh, there, there are times in the afternoon of July 2nd where uh, Reynolds, uh, his, his aide, uh, Henry Tremaine, comes to, the, uh, to, to, to the headquarters. And uh, he is told then exactly what Meade says. And that is, I want him to the left of the second corps. Uh, Dan Sickles shows up. Meade takes him on the porch of the Leicester house and points to Little Round Top and says, I want you to occupy that in your right flank on the second corps. Uh, he sends his son, uh, 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 young Captain Meade. He sends him an aide to, to George Meade. He sends him down to uh, Sickles headquarters and with the idea of, t of his son telling him that's what he wants. I don't know how many times you've got to explain this to a, to a, to a corps commander. But the, and then what does Sickles do? When Meade calls a council of war of his corps commanders um, on the afternoon of July 2nd, while they are convening, Sickles begins the movement of the third corps. And I, 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 I'll tell you, as, as, one of, as one officer said, when, when Meade came out of that Leicester house knowing that Sickles had made a move like that, he said, I have never seen him as mad as I saw him that day. Right. And I could only imagine. <laughs> yeah, and, and Meade himself rides to, to the position just before. All the way out. Yeah. All the way out there. And, you know, and Meads tells him, you know, there's, there's no way you can hold this position. Absolutely none. And he says, well, should I, should I pull back? He says, you may as well. And then Meade has to say, but, you know, 
the enemy's not going to let you. And of course, it it didn't. It knew exactly uh, what it was going to do when they saw uh, sickles go out there. Um, it's it's it is one of the most uh, remarkable uh, uh, violations of one's um, uh, fundamental requirement as a corps commander to obey the orders of your army commander, the operational commander. Um, I've never I've never seen anything quite like it before. Yeah. And, and it's sort of cruel that Sickles is able to sort of control the narrative or at least get the ear of Lincoln very shortly after Gettysburg, oh, yeah. uh, you know. So and I, I think uh, <laughs> we, we can get into that in a second. Um, yeah. So uh, one, one thing that struck me uh, reading your book is, again, Meade's physical location throughout, especially July 2nd, but July, uh, July 3rd as well. Meade yeah. is in the thick of things. Uh, yeah. You know, he, he is... Uh, nearly wounded, his horse is wounded. Um, so, uh, can you talk about um, why he he was sort of in the thick of things, and if that is sort of standard practice for a commander of an army? It certainly is not standard practice. Uh, Meade, of course, um, uh, in the Gettysburg campaign, was what, what we call the operational commander of the Army of the Potomac, controlling all of its operations across the spectrum. However, on July 2nd, once he discovers what has happened on his left flank, Meade um, immediately goes there, as we said, um, and he's the one who directs troops to be sent onto Little Round Top. And then he turns to uh, George Sykes, commander of the Fifth Corps that has just arrived at Gettysburg. And he tells Sykes, he actually has to be, when he says this, he has to be somewhere near the um, northern, just north of what we call the wheat field. And he points to that wheat field. So he's got to be close enough to where Sykes can tell exactly what Meade wants. And he says, I want you to take your entire core and throw it right there. And Meade is right there with Sykes and his staff the entire fighting. And as each division uh, commander brings up his division out of the fifth corps, Meade is there with Sykes directing them exactly where they should go. And I mean, he's almost, he's, he is within, he, the gunfire is coming all around him, uh, yet he stays right there. Uh, he makes one attempt before the fighting really gets hot to get a drink of water. <laughs> and he goes to the to the Weikert farm uh, house right behind Little Round Top, and gets a drink of water. Other than that, that's it. He's behind that uh, those lines as they're deployed. And by the end of the day, Meade will have directed five divisions of his army into that fighting. Wow, that's what, just extraordinary. One thing that I mean, just to to, to sort of uh, evidence of how. Uh, close to danger he was something that i learned reading your book 16 horses of his staff were were killed uh yeah. you know during the battle and and like i said before old baldy was wounded but survived uh survived the battle um <laughs> so um what what's the state of the army ju the night of july 2nd and what considerations 
is Mead making at that point? You you write in the book that you know a lot has been talked about in terms of how many men were wounded and how many casualties the the army suffered, but Mead is also making other calculations. He is, he is, and, and this goes back to the uh, the conference that people love to talk about at the Leicester House with his corps commanders, and um, um, Mead at that conference uh, covers a wide range of subjects with those men. Uh, one, he has taken elements of corps and moved them in different directions all afternoon long, and so consequently, all the corps are broken up. So it's only only proper that every one of those corps commanders get together in one room and everybody know exactly where all their elements of their corps are, which is, of course, what they're doing. They also have to determine uh, what's been the casualty situation with respect to these corps. That only that will tell you whether or not any of them can withstand any more uh, attacks. And where this army had nearly 91,000 uh, combat troops uh, as they moved north, they estimated in that conference they had now probably maybe 56,000. I mean, it's staggering the amount of casualties that that uh, just on July 2nd and then, of course, July 1st uh, racked up in that army. And um, with whatever they have left, this fit, let's say it's, these were estimates, 56,000 troops left, uh, what do we do? And what's interesting about this conference is that uh, some people try to say Meade uh, wanted to uh, uh, use this conference as a means of withdrawing from Gettysburg altogether. Uh, Alan Gelzo says that in his book. Uh, heck, uh, Dan Sickles and Dan uh, Butterfield said that in the Committee on the Conduct of the War, and you know where that came from. Mm -hmm. But, um, but uh, 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 Meade, at 8 o'clock that night, writes a letter to Henry Halleck telling him that what has happened on July 2nd, he says, I intend on staying here. I intend to stay here. Uh, and he says, if I have an opportunity to attack, I will. Now, I'll tell you, that's pretty emphatic. And when you add that to all the other orders that Meade has given over the course of the previous 24 hours, this, there's no possibility this guy has any thoughts of going anywhere else but staying right there. And, um, but he says so. And he says that at 8 o'clock. And that's before the conference even begins. And what's really kind of neat about Meade, Meade doesn't sit there and say, well, I've already told uh, Henry Halleck that I'm going to stay here. He lets his corps commanders talk. And all the corps commanders agree that we ought to stay here. And Meade never says, well, I said so originally anyway. No, he never says it. He, he, this, this fellow is, is, is a, he's a classic leader of men. He's a classic leader of men. And it's, it's, it's like a, um, a football team. I mean, they go into a huddle for a reason. And that is to figure out what they want to do. And instead of telling them, you know, here's what I'm going to do, he, uh, he, he gets the signals from the, from the sidelines and then uh, tells the man, here's what the coach wants us to do. Uh, it's, it, it's a, he's a team player. And this is, uh, this is the first time, by the way, you see in the Army of the Potomac, the commander using this kind of approach with his corps commanders. You don't see it at Chancellorsville. You don't see it at 
Fredericksburg, you don't see it at Antietam, uh, none of those. Uh, here you use, here, here you see a, a army commander, operational commander, uh, using uh, councils to discuss what has happened and what's going to happen with his, with his key officers, and he succeeds. There's an overwhelming victory for Union arms. And it goes to show you that um, whereas if people have belittled this, it's one of the things Meade uses to win. And um, yeah, I, today, I, I, in today's army, Meade would be loved. Right, right. And I, I agree with that. I, yeah, I've always thought the criticisms on the council of war were it weren't well founded. Um, uh, you know, like you said, bringing people together and hearing people out, even if ultimately you're going to make a different decision, I think is always a good thing. Uh, Absolutely. So, one of the other things that comes out of that council of war is Meade is they're going to stay. Obviously. July 3rd. They're not going to take the offensive uh, unless certain things happen. What does he think is going to happen on July 3rd? I mean, he's pretty good at predicting uh, in this case. Well, he, 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 he really does. And he does in fact predict. He meets uh, John Gibbon, uh, who a a young division division commander in the second Corps, who Meade very much likes Uh, both he and Winfield Hancock are, are, are close to me. And as Gibbon uh, uh, talks with Meade after the council is over, he says, you know, General, I really shouldn't have been here. Meade says, no, I wanted you here. And um, Meade then tells him, um, if Lee's going to attack tomorrow, it's going to be on your front. And Gibbon says, how do you know that, General? And he says, well, look, he's attacked our left flank and failed. And he's attacked our right flank and failed, meaning Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill, which Lee did that night. Um, And he says, the next time he's going to attack our center, and that's you. And of course, that is exactly what Lee did the next day. Uh, Gibbon responded by saying, well, I hope then if he does, I hope he does. And if he does, uh, we'll whip him. And of course, uh, Gibbon was just as accurate as me was. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and how many times does he have to change the location of his headquarters on July 3rd? <laughs> oh, well, this is, and by the way, you mentioned the 16 horses lost in yeah. Meade's staff. Those horses were really all lost during the bombardment that preceded the uh, the assault of Pickett's and Pettigrew's and Trimble's Demi Division uh, uh, on July 3rd. And uh, that bombardment was just horrific. And uh, his, his staff officers had uh, tethered their, their animals to the fence in front of the Leicester house. And you can look at the photography of the Leicester house after the battle's over. You see the dead horses all over the ground and in the, in the Tanny Town Road. Uh, you can see it for yourself in the photography, the horses that were lost. Um, but uh, Meade, you know, in the morning of July 3rd, rides all the way up to uh, Little Round Top. And uh, this is the second time he's done this. He did this on July 2nd as well. And in the position of the 146th New York on the, uh, the northern summit of Little Round Top, he stops, takes out his binoculars, and takes a look at the Confederate positions. And he sees all those guns coming up. And he can see them lining up. 
and Meade can tell you, he knew right then and there that's a bombardment that's about to happen that will precede an attack. And so uh, down the slope he goes back to the center of the lines and he begins to continue to shore up those defenses as much as he can with elements of core all over the field. And, um, and of course we know what happened. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this, Kent, uh, you know, one of the things that's so fascinating and the reason why it mead, um, it doesn't hold the, isn't in the lofty place that say, uh, us grant is or other military leaders is the immediate aftermath of Gettysburg yeah, and, yeah. and, and what didn't happen in terms of Lee is able to get back over the river. Now, you know, I often, so uh, Abraham Lincoln, obviously a very smart man. Um, and I think a ha- good grasp on military matters as well, but he seems to buy into this idea that the army of Northern Virginia can be destroyed in one decisive battle. And the war is already two years old at that point. And, you know, do you think that Lincoln is just not being realistic? He's not being realistic. Yeah. And, um, um, I, I love the quote at the end of the book, uh, of Henry Hunt's. Uh, that uh, the, 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 the victory at Gettysburg was such that it, 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 for Lincoln and his confidants, uh, they, they started uh, accepting beliefs and understandings that were totally unrealistic based upon the euphoria of the victory. Now, once they once Meade, they heard Meade won, they thought anything can be possible now. And of course, it's not so. And um, <clears throat> I mentioned earlier about the lack of supplies coming into the Army of the Potomac uh, throughout the entire Battle of Gettysburg. And um, horses hadn't been fed, mules haven't been fed, men haven't been fed. And um, as a consequence, the Army was weakened severely. And uh, you, I, I, I love going through the, the uh, uh, military manuals of the time. Uh, the, the, the manuals of, of, of the United States Army then mandated that horses should be fed 14 pounds of oats and 14 pounds of hay a day. Yeah. Now, Meade has upwards to 60,000 horses and mules. Uh, mules must be fed every day too, 14 pounds of hay, but then also a mix of other grains, but still about the same amount as you would feed a horse. Now that's almost impossible for a military commander to meet and a chief quartermaster to meet, but you've got to get close. Otherwise the animal gets weak and is prone to collapse and just break down in the road particularly when you're asking those animals to do what these people are asking them to do. And that is pull guns, uh, men, uh, wagons loaded with, 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 with material. Um, and um, as a consequence, when Meade, Meade absolutely did about everything a human being could do to get that army to the Potomac to confront Lee, but he had, it was a 64 mile journey for him where it was about 40 miles for Lee. And, uh, and then Meade had to cross two mountain ranges to get there. 
Lee didn't have to cross but one, and that was early in it, and that's the South Mountain Range. After that, it was flat all the way to the Potomac River. Um, and beyond that, <clears throat> Lee's army, because of the way it was situated at the Battle of Gettysburg, all of its divisions had set up hospitals and quartermaster depots three miles behind where each of those divisions was in combat. So that their supplies, their food, their fodder, their horses, horseshoes and nails, everything was at that site three miles behind where those troops were fighting. So that most of Lee's army, though they were meagerly fed, were still fed. Meads was not. Right, right. And it, 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 we read all the time about George Patton's Third Army running out of fuel, diesel fuel. Well, the army stops. You run out of, you, you don't feed your horses, and those horses start to break down. Your army's going to stop. And so <clears throat> I love one quote from Ed Coddington, and I, he, and I think he hit it on the head. He said, Meade soon learned during the pursuit of, of Lee that he, he, he ceased to have an instrument capable of doing what he wanted it to do. Yeah. Yeah. Too weak, too broken down. And um, you're going to have to completely retool the Army of the Potomac in order for it to continue this combat with its enemy. Do you think too much has been made of Meade's politics over the years in terms of how it influenced him as a military leader? Uh, Meade was a conservative Democrat. Um, you know, th there there have been historians who have sort of uh, certainly argued that, that, uh, you, you know, that he was just happy to get Lee out of Pennsylvania. That sort of he's thinking like locally, get him out. You know, I don't care once he's out kind of situation. So has there been too much made of that? I think so. I really do. I, I look at most of the command structure of the Army of the Potomac for most of the war, and it was filled with the Democrats. Yes, it was. Uh, I mean, some of them are really vocal. Uh, one of them ran against Lincoln for the right. president. <laughs> no, I, I think much has been made of that. And I, I, I don't, um, I don't cotton to it really. I, he, in fact, if you really scratched him uh, in the election of 1860, he went for neither. According to his son, he went for neither. He voted for the uh, Constitutional yeah. Union candidate. But look at his family. I mean, he, they're going to be at war against one another. He has so many members of his family in the, in the, uh, uh, in the Confederate Army. Right, right. Do you yeah. think, you know... Uh, and back back to Dan Sickles, I, I couldn't resist. Um, <laughs> it, you know, uh, could Mead uh, could Mead have been a better teller of his own story? You know, S Sickles grabbed a hold of that narrative and never let go. Uh, in terms of how he painted how the battle, you know, uh, took yeah. shape. You know, is there could Mead have? You know, I, I don't I don't know the question I'm trying to ask, but you know, Mead just never had he never grabbed a hold of it and controlled the narrative after Gettysburg. Well, you know, once it got into the New York newspapers, um, right. which is where Sickles directed his first attacks against Meade, uh, Meade actually asked Halleck, uh, should he respond to that? He says, I would like to respond to that. 
and Halleck told him not to. And uh, me being the good um, uh, uh, lieutenant in this, uh, good subordinate to the commander in chief, he uh, said very well. So he didn't. Yeah. And I think it was probably wise counsel, to be right, honest. Right, right. Well, Kent Masterson Brown, the book is Meade at Gettysburg, A Study in Command. I highly recommend it. I really enjoyed reading it. And honestly, Kent, if your book stopped on July 1st, it would still be a very satisfying book in terms of <laughs> in terms of the maneuvering from the moment Meade takes command to July 1st. There is a there there's a lot going on, a lot that I learned. So I, I really appreciate it, Kent. Thank you very much, Nick. Thank you. It's been it's been fun.